have a Bible, uh, you are free to take that as our gift to you and bring that home with you. We want you to have a Bible and a copy of God's Word. I want to start reading in verse 22 of Matthew 14 all the way through to the end of the chapter. The Scripture says, Immediately he, being Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me now as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word and its goodness and its truth and its beauty. God, as we prepare to hear from your word... We pray for this faith family, for the dear saints that make up the membership of Pocosin Baptist Church. Father, we pray that through your word today, you would grow us in our trust. Not our trust in ourselves, not even necessarily our trust in others but our trust in you. Jesus, you are the wave walker, the storm calmer, the sickness healer. There is nothing too hard for you. And yet, if we're honest, we often live like we don't believe that's true. We often live in fear. We often refuse to take risks Step out in faith like Peter did, because we don't know what's going to happen. Help us to have hearts that think and feel and believe that it's better to stand on the waves and be closer to Jesus than to stay in the boat and be further away from Him. Grow us in our trust, 
of you today. Father, we pray not only for this church, but for our sister church, Reformation Christian Fellowship and Newport News. I thank you for my dear friend, Kenny Diaria, and the other pastors there. We ask that you would give them wisdom and grace to lead change of various ministries in the church. And Father, we pray for the congregation that they would receive those changes with humble and teachable hearts. And Father, I pray for Kenny that you would bless his health, bless his marriage, bless his family, bless his ministry, and may he be used mightily by you for your glory. Do great things at Reformation Christian Fellowship today, we pray, for the praise of Jesus. Lord, we don't just pray for our brothers and sisters, we pray for our country. And today we pray against the epidemic of drug abuse that is wreaking havoc all across this nation, including in our own communities. This is a problem that enslaves so many, destroying their bodies, wasting their minds, and crushing their souls. Tens of millions of Americans, age 12 and over, are addicted to various drugs. Drug overdose has now become the leading cause of death for people in America ages 18 to 45. Father, break our hearts for this tragedy in our nation. Father, we ask that as people seek escape from the problems and realities of life through drug use, that, that you would awaken them to a different and better path. We pray that your Holy Spirit would turn hearts from the idol of drugs to the living and true God. We, we pray for a great awakening in our nation, that many might find true joy and peace and freedom and forgiveness and restoration and healing in Jesus. We pray that you would help us to be people who really believe that the power of the gospel can set any captive free. We pray for lawmakers, that you'd give them wisdom and courage to pass laws that can better control the misuse of legal drugs and reduce the flow of illegal drugs. We pray that you grant law enforcement success in stopping the flow of illegal drugs into this country. We pray that you grant doctors and wisdom integrity in prescribing drugs. And for those who are addicted, once again, we pray for their release from those chains and we ask that they would find freedom and joy and contentment in Jesus. And may we as your church, both at PBC and at faithful local churches across the nation, may we serve as hospitals for these souls. But we don't just pray for our country, we pray for the world. And today we pray for Kuwait. We pray for its leader, Emir Sheikh Nawaf Al-Ahmad Al-Jabur Al-Sabah. Father, we pray that you would grant him wisdom to lead in such a way that there would be protection and sanctity of life for the unborn, that there would be justice for the vulnerable, and human flourishing for all the citizens of Kuwait. God, we do thank you for the relative material prosperity that Kuwait enjoys as a nation, but we remember soberly the words of Jesus when he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. God, in this nation, 82% of the citizens are Muslim, and most Christians in Kuwait are not from Kuwait. And so we ask, Father, that you would 
empower local churches in Kuwait to be faithful in their efforts to reach the Kuwaiti people with the gospel. And Father, we pray that you would send laborers into that harvest, perhaps even some from PBC to go and take the good news of Jesus to the people of Kuwait. And now, Father, as we turn our attention to your word, we ask that you would speak to us through your word, for your glory. Holy Spirit, preach louder than I can preach, and do what I cannot do, and speak to the heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Matteo Messina Denaro was called the Sicilian Godfather, the unchallenged boss of all bosses within the Italian Mafia. Also known as Diabolic, Denaro's crimes would make Vito Corleone blush. He once boasted he had killed enough people to fill an entire cemetery. We know that among those numbers, it included a young child who was murdered simply because he was the son of a criminal rival. Denaro had been in hiding since 1993. It was then that he orchestrated a series of bombings that were targeting the lead prosecutors investigating the mafia. Uh, the, the bombings terrorized Italy and led to Denaro becoming one of the most wanted men in the world. Well, on January 16th, 2023, the Sicilian godfather was finally arrested. How did he avoid capture for over 30 years? For Denaro, it was because he was hidden in plain sight. Upon his capture, he was found living openly near his birthplace in Sicily in a small town about the size of Pocosin. He didn't use a disguise. He was seen regularly about town at bars, the supermarket, various restaurants, even the local football stadium. For months, he was undergoing treatments for colon cancer at the clinic where he would eventually be captured. But Denaro did virtually nothing to hide his identity. The only thing he did was he gave them a different name. He would regularly bring the staff presents, and he would exchange phone numbers and text messages with patients at the clinic. One doctor who was treating him was even taking selfies with Denaro as if he knew he was in the presence of a celebrity. On the day of his arrest, 150 Italian police officers surrounded the clinic where Denaro was receiving his treatments. Denaro was waiting outside the clinic, waiting the results of a COVID test before he entered the building, and one of the police officers approached him, and he said, are you Matteo Messina Denaro? And he replied, you know who I am. A few moments later, after hiding in plain sight for 30 years, the Sicilian godfather was finally in custody. In a sense, Jesus has been hiding in plain sight 
for the first 14 and a half chapters of Matthew's gospel. Let me tell you what I mean. Think of what he's done so far. He's resisted Satan's temptations. He's taught with authority. He's healed the sick. He's cleansed the leper. He's given sight to the blind. He's cast out demons. He's even raised the dead. He's forgiven sin. He's calmed storms. He's fed thousands with fish and bread. And yet, His disciples, who have been with Him for mostly the entire time, still don't fully understand the truth about who Jesus is. They might think that He's superhuman, but they don't realize that He's the God-man. They don't fully understand yet that Jesus is God with us, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God who became flesh and dwelled among us to rescue His people from their sins. At this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has only been referred to as the Son of God a few times. In Matthew chapter 3, God the Father says, you remember, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased at Jesus' baptism. In Matthew 4, Satan repeatedly tempts Jesus and he says, if you are the Son of God, do this. In Matthew chapter 8, a legion of demons ask Jesus, or they say to Jesus, what do you have to do with us, O Son of God? And in Matthew 11, Jesus calls Himself the Son of the Father. But at this point in Matthew's gospel, no other human being has referred to Jesus as the Son of God. All that changes with this story. When the story begins, the disciples are getting into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. They're probably a little confused. We'll see why in a moment. Maybe even a little bit angry. Mark's gospel tells us that their hearts were beginning to get hardened towards Jesus. That's how the story begins. At the end of the story, you'll notice in verse 33, they're worshiping Jesus and calling Him the Son of God. What happened? What happened in the middle? The disciples see the truth that was hidden in plain sight in front of their eyes the entire time. They see the truth about who Jesus is. And they finally realize that the only right response to the truth about Jesus is to worship Him as God. That's the big idea I want you to get from our text this morning. The only right response to the truth about Jesus is to worship Him as the Son of God. Like every time we gather here together, there are likely two groups of people in this room. Some of you are not believers in Jesus. Well, maybe you believe some things about Him, but you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, but the way that Jesus explains what followers of Jesus should do really doesn't look anything like your life. 
I would challenge you today to look and examine the truth about Jesus. And I would invite you and plead with you today to worship Him as God. The second group of people in this room is the Christians in this room, followers of Jesus. You've put your faith in Him. You've put your, all your hope in His blood like we sung about a few moments ago. But for you, if you're honest, it is still all so hard to trust Him the way that you should. And my prayer for you today is that as you look again at the truth about who Jesus is, your faith in Him would be strengthened. With God's help, I want to show you four, four proofs from our text that Jesus is the Son of God. Four proofs. Proof number one, Worship Jesus as the Son of God because He has divine authority. Worship Jesus as the Son of God because He has divine authority. Look with me again at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side while He dismissed the crowds. First, I want to look at that word immediately. Immediately after what? Well, if you were with us last week... You remember the story of Jesus feeding some 20,000 plus people with a few pieces of fish and bread. You can read that story a little earlier in Matthew's gospel. Now, as amazing as it would have been to witness that miracle, John's gospel tells us it wasn't all sunshine and roses after the miracle was complete. Uh, listen to what John records in his account in John chapter 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done, referring to the feeding of the thousands there, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So far, so good. This is someone special. Well, the story continues. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The crowd sees Jesus, they see his power, they see what he can do, and they say, we have got to leverage this. We've got to use this to overthrow Rome. Now, don't you think that some of the disciples might have been a little bit excited about that? I mean, all of a sudden, Peter, James, and John, and, and Judas, and Bartholomew, and all these guys, they're like, wow, the crowd finally sees your power. They want to make you king. We want you to be king too. Let's go, and let's, let's storm the castle. Let's take care of Herod for what he did to John the Baptist. Let's get rid of Pilate. Let's get rid of Rome. They're ready to make him king. But instead of a coronation ceremony, Jesus sends the disciples away into a boat and orders them to cross the other side. If you look at verse 22, it says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. That word made is an unusually strong word in the original language. It suggests that there was probably an argument, and Jesus insists, no, get in the boat now. Jesus exercising His divine authority over His disciples. I'm not going to be made king this way. Get in the boat. 
But it's not just his authority over the disciples. Think about his authority over the crowd. Think about this just for a second. If a mob of 20,000 plus people was determined to force any of us to do something, we would be powerless to resist. Think about it. What if everybody in this room turned to you after this service and tries to force you to do something? How hard is it going to be to resist even a crowd this size? And we're talking about thousands seeking to make Jesus come by force, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. Matthew's explanation of what happened is, is super to the point and really not impressive. It just says Jesus dismissed the crowds. How did, we, how did He do it? We don't know. But here, once again, we see Jesus is, has divine authority, and you will not force Jesus to wear a crown against His will. Isn't it interesting Later in Jesus' life and ministry, He will wear a crown, but not of gold, of thorns. And even then, He was not forced to wear it against His will. He is in charge. He has divine authority. In our country today, I think we are experiencing a little bit of what we might call mob morality. Thousands and thousands, if not millions of Americans are convinced that certain things are moral and certain things are immoral. And all too often, the things that our culture celebrates as good, the Scriptures condemn as sin. And the things that the Scriptures celebrate as virtuous, the culture condemns. We are Christian, whether you're experiencing it or not, we are in a fishbowl with a mob of fish ready to get you to swim along their current in their direction. If you're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we will not take our cues from the culture. We will submit to the authority of Jesus and His Word. Christian, that is not going to be easy. I want to suggest to you that it wasn't necessarily easy for Jesus either. We sometimes think that the only temptation that Jesus endured was in the beginning of His ministry. Remember, He's in the wilderness for 40 days. Satan comes and tempts Him. Three temptations. Satan leaves, and Jesus was never tempted again. But the Scripture tells us that Jesus was tempted in all ways, just as we are yet without sin. I believe it's in Luke's Gospel where the text says that Satan left Jesus until He would later return at a more opportune time. I believe that Jesus was tempted throughout His life and perhaps quite possibly here. Perhaps there was the temptation, although we can't say for sure, the temptation to have the crown without the cross. But Jesus resisted that temptation. How did He do it? In the same way that you and I must resist. Look at verse 23. And after He dismissed the crowds... He went up on the mountain by Himself to pray. If Jesus, the Son of God, set aside time to pray, 
how much more should we? Christian, could it be that one of the reasons that you struggle to submit to Jesus' authority is because you struggle to pray? What might it look like for you, dear Christian, to take more seriously the invitation I won't even say command, although it is a command, but the invitation that Jesus invites you to come to Him in prayer. How might that help us in our battle against sin? We believe that Jesus is the Son of God because He has divine authority. Let me ask you, brother, sister, friend, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has divine authority? Do you live like you believe that? In what areas of your life are you resisting Jesus' authority? In your internet usage? Your dating life? In your church involvement? In your marriage? In your parenting? In your finances? What would it look like for you to move towards obedience and Jesus, because you really believe that He has divine authority. There's a second proof of Jesus being the Son of God in our text. Not only does He have divine authority, number two, He also has divine ability. Divine ability. Look at verse 23 again, the middle part of the verse. When evening came, Jesus was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, now before we look at Jesus' ability here in this part of the story, we need to do a little bit of history. Uh, perhaps you're wondering, what is meant by that phrase, the fourth watch of the night? I mean, does Jesus have like lots of Apple Watch bands and he's changing them out? Time for number four. All right, now I'm going to go and get them. There was nothing like that. Uh, in Jesus' day, the Romans broke up the nighttime into four sections called the four watches of the night. Uh, the first watch was not an expensive overpriced breakfast joint. It marked the time from 6 to 9 p.m., often called evening. The second, I thought that first watch joke was funny too. Thank you for whoever's laughing over there. Second watch was called the Midnight Watch. That was from 9 p.m. to midnight. Third watch was called the Cockroach Watch from midnight to 3. Fourth watch was the Dawn Watch from 3 a.m. to about 6 a.m. So the text tells us that when evening came, he was there alone. So by 6 p.m., by the first watch, by that time, the disciples are already in the boat crossing the sea. The Sea of Galilee is a relatively small lake. We talked about that last week. Crossing from one side to the other under optimum conditions would at most in that day maybe take a few hours. But notice that the text tells us that at the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., they are still no closer to the other side. It's been roughly nine hours or more. They've been sailing all night, and they're still far from shore. I want you to put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a moment. What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling in that moment? The, the, the easiest comparison that I can make in my own life to this is 
some sort of a, a trip that I think is going to take an hour, and I get stuck in traffic, and it's three hours, and I am not in a happy mood when that happens. You, ask, you can relate, right? You're expecting something quick and short, but it's way longer than it's supposed to be. Well, add to that, not only are you frustrated by the delay, you're tired because you're rowing. I mean, most of us don't have Fred Flintstone cars, right? We actually have to do manual labor to get it moved. You're just, you know, you're doing something really hard in that car waiting in traffic. You're sitting in a chair. I mean, that's difficult, right? These guys are in a boat, and they're rowing and sailing and trying to get to the other side and add to that, not only this is taking forever, not only I'm tired, not only I'm exhausted physically, but I'm afraid. What if I never get across? Now, you remember the last time the disciples were in a big storm like this on the Sea of Galilee, they had a friend with them in the boat asleep. Jesus. So even in this moment, they can't be like, well, at least Jesus is over there. Jesus isn't there. We're alone. He sent us here by ourselves. What are we going to do? He can't get to where we are. What are we going to do? The disciples feel completely alone but they aren't alone. It's a good reminder, Christian, that so often in life, we need to put the facts before our feelings. Jesus would later promise His disciples, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that promise is true for you, every Christian in this room. Jesus is with you, and you are never alone. But sometimes you feel very alone. You put the facts before your feelings. So Jesus is on the mountain praying, but He knew exactly where the disciples were, and He knew exactly when He would arrive. Maybe you're wondering this morning, if God is really with me in my suffering, then why doesn't He deliver me from it? Why doesn't He deliver me? Can I remind you, Christian, that the Word of God never promises that in this life you will be delivered from every trial. It does promise that you will be delivered through every trial. Those are different things. I love the way Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, our God will either make the burden lighter or the back stronger. He will diminish the need or increase the supply. How often do we only pray, God, take away this trial. Make the burden lighter. What if instead God says, now I want to, make, I want to give you a stronger back instead. I don't want a stronger back. Who made you? clay to call out against the potter? Will he not shape and fashion each vessel according to his will? I think it's interesting that even when God does increase our strength or decrease our suffering, 
He rarely does it on our schedule. You notice that, haven't you? Like it's never when you want him to. Someone said, Amen. It's like we know this. Isn't it interesting? The disciples are out there for hours and hours and hours. Couldn't Jesus have had come after 30 minutes and walked on the water? I mean, he could have. Same effect, right? But Jesus often intends to teach us things in our suffering that we would not learn when the skies are clear. Isn't that true, Christian? Isn't it true that often it's in the storms, often it's in the suffering where God shows Himself to us most mightily and most merciful? Don't grow impatient, Christian. Trust that God intends this for your good. Trust that Jesus knows exactly where you are. Trust that wherever you are in life, you are not too far away for Jesus to reach you. Well, more important than when Jesus shows up is how Jesus shows up. He shows up walking on water. Now, I would challenge you don't let your familiarity with this story get in the way of how amazing this is. Uh, maybe you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're not a believer and you say, this stuff like this, that's why. I mean, people don't walk on water. Everybody knows that. Guess what? The people who wrote these gospels, they knew that people didn't walk on water either. All right? I mean, these people weren't some sort of primitive cavemen buffoons that didn't know that you can't walk on water. And most, of us, most of them knew way more about water and life on the sea than any of us ever will. They knew that this was a miracle. Some people have said that all the disciples just saw an optical illusion and it appeared to them that Jesus was walking on water. You know what? You might as well just throw this whole thing out if you're going to believe crazy things like that. Just reject all of it. What the text says is exactly what the text means. Jesus stood on top of water in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and walked from the shore to wherever the boat was. Now, if you believe that God exists and He created the world and everything in it, including every particle of water, then it shouldn't be that much of a stretch to believe that Jesus, the one who spoke, who is the Word of God, who was there at creation, is able to stand on top of water and suspend the law of gravity that He invented, by the way, to get to His disciples. If you believe that God exists and He created the world and everything in it, believing that Jesus walked on water isn't too challenging. But this is more than just some sort of a superhuman trick. Jesus is not out there saying, look what I can do, everybody. He's showing them something. He's showing them that He has ability that only God has. Listen to Job chapter 9, verse 8, where it says that God alone stretched out the heavens, 
and trampled or walked on the waves of the sea. Or Psalm 77, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. The psalmist was probably looking backward to that great story where the people of God walked through the Red Sea, and yet on this side of the cross, we see that that event was pointed to an even greater path over the sea when Jesus walked not under it, but on top of it. Jesus has divine ability. So we worship Him as God. Let me ask you again, dear brother, sister, friend, do you believe this? Do you live like you believe this? When are you tempted to, devout, to doubt the divine ability of Jesus? When life is hard? When you lose someone you love? When God seems to ignore your prayers? Or when maybe He hears them, but He says no? Or when the darkness doesn't seem to lift? When are you tempted to, to doubt that Jesus has divine ability? Worship Jesus as the Son of God because He has divine ability. Number three, because He shares the divine name. Jesus has the divine name. So what, what does that mean? Well, look at verse 26. When the disciples saw Him walking on water... They were terrified, and they said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Now, just for a moment, uh, some people have tried to say, well, see, ghosts are real. Even the disciples believed in ghosts. The text is not telling us that we should believe in ghosts. It's just telling us what the disciples said. And believe it or not, sometimes even the followers of Jesus believe and behave in ways that God does not approve of. So what's going on? They, they, they see somebody walking on the water, and believe it or not, it doesn't calm their fears. If anything, now they're more afraid. Like storms in the Sea of Galilee, at least they had some experience. When's the last time they saw somebody walking on water? This is a new kind of fear. Jesus comforts them in a surprising way. Look at verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now it's easy to look at the two phrases on the two ends of what Jesus says and not look at what he says in the middle. He says, take heart. He says, do not be afraid. Both of those Phrases are encouraging and even comforting. But what about what he says in the middle? He says, it is I. Uh, let me remind you that the, the New Testament was written originally in the language of the common day, the language of Koine Greek. In Greek, the phrase, it is I, literally reads, I am. So here's what Jesus is saying, take heart, don't be afraid, I am. Why would he say that? 
The disciples probably didn't grasp it right away, but as they reflected on that moment, they would know and understand that those words were deliberately chosen by Jesus. 1,500 years before this story, a man named Moses was being sent by God to deliver his people from slavery to the Egyptians. You know the story, but Moses is concerned. He's looking for reasons not to go and do it. And one of the things he says is, well, well, who am I supposed to say sent me? He's talking to God through a burning bush, and he says, what's your name? People are going to want to know. Listen to what God says in Exodus chapter 3. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses says, God, what's your name? He says, I am. And then he he calls himself the Lord, and you notice in the text, it's all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps. You might notice that a lot when you're reading the Old Testament, especially any time you see that, that's an Old Testament name for God, Yahweh, which is built on the word I am. When God gives us his name, he doesn't say I was or I will be, but he says I am. And Jesus on the water in Galilee says the same thing to his fearful disciples. The same God who spoke to Moses through a burning bush is standing on the water. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Jesus shares the divine name. You'll often come across people who will say things like, Jesus never claimed to be God. He was a good man. He was a good teacher. He did good things. We should emulate his example. He never claimed to be God. People that say that have not understood the New Testament. To to call yourself, I am, something Jesus does not only here but multiple times throughout the gospel would be the height of blasphemy. And yet Jesus does it with straight face because He has existed in eternity as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Worship Jesus as the Son of God because He shares the divine name. And number four, because he has divine power. Jesus has divine power. Look with me at verse 28 in your Bible. And Peter answered Jesus, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, Peter thinks to himself, if Jesus has the ability to walk on water, then he also must have the power to help me walk on water too. Uh, Some say that Peter's being brash and presumptuous here. But I really don't think so. Because what Peter doesn't do is just jump out into the water. He asks Jesus, if if you're Jesus, if if you're who you say you are, if you're I am, tell me to come out on the water. 
He's not being presumptuous, I don't think. I think he's seriously asking, Jesus, I believe you have the power to do this. Call me. Some people say, well, Jesus is kind of showboating before the disciples. You know, Peter does often put his foot in his mouth. He does seem to be kind of the first one to speak up and say something that he shouldn't. But I don't really think that's what he's doing here either. I don't think Peter is thinking, I'm going to show these other guys what real faith looks like and jump out on the water. I don't think Peter is trying to feed his ego. I don't think Peter's really thinking about himself at all. And one of the reasons for that is because the Bible tells us multiple times that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Jesus is not resisting Peter. What does he say to Peter? Come, come. So Peter got out of the boat, verse 29, and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. Here's what I think is going on in Peter's head. Two things. One, I think Peter believes it's safer and better to be on the in the storm closer to Jesus than in the boat further away from him. The second thing I think is going through Peter's mind is he just wants to be near Jesus. He loves Jesus. I think that Peter just wants to get closer to Jesus. I think there is an incredible lesson for us here Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, hear me for just this moment. I think we often think that safety is determined by our circumstances. I think Christians should disagree wholeheartedly with that assessment. Safety, true safety, is not measured by your circumstances, but by your closeness to Jesus the closer you are to Jesus, the safer you will be, even if getting closer to Him requires great risk. Dear Christian, you can risk great things and still be incredibly safe if you're risking those things in pursuit of nearness to Jesus. Now listen to the way that John Piper puts it. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, he says, It is right to risk for the cause of Christ. It is right to engage the enemy and say, May the Lord do what seems good to him. It is right to serve the people of God and say, If I perish, I perish. It is right to stand before the fiery furnace of affliction and refuse to bow down to the gods of this world. This is the road that leads to fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Peter takes a risk. He steps out on water, but he's moving closer to Jesus, and he is incredibly safe. But he's not safe because of Peter. He's safe because of Jesus. You'll notice in verse 30, when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord save me. Peter is often, again, criticized here for taking his eyes off Jesus. And I, I do think, Christian, it's true. There's a lesson here for us. Strength is found not by looking at the storm, but looking to Jesus. Hope 
and help and peace, all of that is found not by looking to your circumstances, but by looking to your Savior. And yet, too often this passage is preached, and the moral of the story is Peter utterly failed because he took his eyes off Jesus. Let me suggest to you that is not the moral of this story. The moral of this story is that even if Peter failed in this moment, he cannot ultimately fail. Why? Because Jesus didn't take his eyes off Peter. Christian, let me just tell you, you're going to take your eyes off Jesus. Spoiler alert. Maybe you're doing it right now. Think about what what am I going to do for lunch? You weren't even thinking about that. Now you are. You're going to take your eyes off Jesus. If your stability in the Christian life is rooted in how good you are at keeping your eyes on Jesus, you're doomed. And so am I. But if your stability in this life is rooted in how well Jesus keeps His eyes on you, you are safe. Notice, notice, verse 31. Or rather, verse 30 again, notice Peter. What does he do when he begins to sink? He cries out, Lord, save me. The perfect thing to do when you're sinking. Jesus, save me. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't leave Peter to reap what he has sown. He doesn't say, you made your bed, Peter. Now lie in it or swim in it. He doesn't say, you, that's what I, that man, I'm just telling you, you got to keep looking at me. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of Jesus, or took hold of Peter, sorry, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When our eyes wander from our Savior and we cry out to him for help, he immediately is there for, to help us. That does not mean, dear Christian, that He affirms you in your doubt. He doesn't celebrate our doubt. He issues a gentle rebuke to Peter. Literally, He calls him little faith. Oh, little faith, why did you doubt? And so too, Jesus, through His Word and through His people, will speak to us when we doubt, when we take our eyes off of Him. There will be those gentle rebukes and corrections that come from the Word of God, and yet His hand is still there to pull us up. The point of this section is that Jesus has divine power to walk on water, the power to help Peter walk on water, even if it's only just a few baby steps, the power to rescue Peter when he begins to sink, and verse 32, the power to calm the storm. Our invitation then is to worship Jesus as the Son of God because He has divine power. How might we respond to this text today? I think there's two responses in the remaining verses of our passage. 
verses 34 to 36 show us one response. It's there that we see kind of a summary statement of Jesus in the land of Gennesaret. People recognize who He is, and they send word all over that region, bring your sick to Jesus. All we have to do is touch His garment, even the fringes of His garment, and we can be healed. There were, wherever Jesus went, crowds of, crowds of people following Him to receive something from Him, some sort of benefit from Jesus. Jesus, in His kindness, did not withhold healing, even from those who only touched the fringe of His garment. But can I say to you, dear friend, this morning, Jesus wants more from you than merely you to get some benefits from Him. Jesus wants more. Jesus demands more. Christianity is bigger than just having a better marriage or better parenting or a better, uh, better handle of your finances or, or not being addicted to so many of the vices that, that addict and trap so many of our neighbors. Christianity is much bigger than that. It's bigger than some sort of earthly benefit. Christianity is about worshiping Jesus as the Son of God. And that's what we see in the second response in verse 33. The disciples, it tells us of them in verse 33, that they worshiped Jesus saying, truly you are the Son of Have you really done that this morning, dear friend? Is your faith in this Jesus as the Son of God? Have you turned from your sins and trusted only in Jesus? I'm not asking you how strong your faith is this morning, Christian. Even Peter, a little faith, was able to walk on water when that faith was in Jesus. This is not about the strength of your faith right this moment, but about the, the subject of it. Where is your faith? Jesus invites you to place it in Him, to worship Him. Even weak faith in a strong God is enough. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus and you've not worshipped Jesus as the Son of God, would you do that today? Would you talk with me after the service if you want to learn more, if you want to sit down and do coffee or lunch or breakfast and just talk more about what it means to worship Jesus as God? I would love to do that with you. Or the person who invited you, I'm sure, would love to do that with you. But would you see the proofs of who He is and worship Him? Give your life to Him. He does not want your mere affirmation. He wants your life. For those of you that are followers of Jesus, if He is God and you have worshipped Him as God, then what would it look like for you to take steps of risky faith and obedience to King Jesus? It would be a, a conversation that you know you should have but you haven't had. Would it be something at home? Maybe dad's actually leading your kids through family devotions. 
or maybe parents being more engaged in the life of the church, or, or maybe Christian, it's you're not a member of a church and you need to actually connect with a church and covenant through membership. Or maybe it's something to do with your giving. Or maybe it's your service. Maybe you have gifts that you're not using to serve God's people. Maybe it has something to do with the time you spend in God's word or prayer. What steps would God invite you to take to move closer to Jesus. My challenge to you would be that you think about that and pray about that and talk with another Christian about that so that they might help you and keep you accountable. And when inevitably you take your eyes off Jesus, rejoice that if you belong to Him, He never takes His eyes off you. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice in the gift of Your eternal Son, Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who has divine authority. All authority under heaven and earth has been granted to you. We thank you that you have divine ability, that you can do things that no mere human can do. We thank you that you have the divine name that you told us repeatedly, you are the God of the entire scriptures. It all points to you. You said you were, I am. And we thank you for your divine power. May we as your people draw near to you and may we experience your love and your power as we seek to follow you even when we stumble. May we rejoice that you will never let your people go. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand with me as we sing together. Mm -hmm.